0: Hi, I'm Andrew. Welcome to the Reviewer 2 Does Geoengineering Podcast. I'm here today with Matthew Ralph to talk about DAC, and a very long paper title is 2. Matthew, would you like to start by giving us the title of the paper that you're here to discuss?
1: Certainly, Andrew, and and hello, everyone. Assessing the physical potential capacity of direct air capture with integrated supply of low-carbon energy sources is the title of the paper.
0: So you're basically thinking about how to power DAC, without creating lots of carbon emissions that you don't have to control. So by comparison, the carbon engineering process has a lot of gas use because uh, it's a heat-driven process. And so they are using a naturally high-carbon energy source to power their process. And your paper is looking at doing something rather different. Is that correct?
1: Yes. So what we wanted to do was to understand whether or not if we wanted to couple direct air capture to Renewable energy sources, you know, was there enough renewable energy to make sort of a difference to this? And, and particularly we were interested in whether or not the different classes of renewable or low carbon energy had sufficient capacity to, to give us the kinds of levels of, of direct air capture that we think we need. So we examined various different types of renewable energy and nuclear energy as the, uh, as the low carbon energy sources. So particularly solar, solar PV, solar thermal, geothermal, wind, and nuclear, as well as biomes.
0: Before we get into the guts of the paper, and I'm sure we're going to enjoy doing that, but uh, we'd like to start off with the team and the process of publication, because our listeners are as interested in how academia is done as they are in the outputs of academia so who did you with where are you based where are all your co-authors based how did the project come together and how did it end up going through the publication journey
1: certainly so you know the author list is all we're all at georgia tech which is a engineering institute in atlanta georgia they were all at the here at the same time. And the first two authors, Stefan Farr and Julian Powell, were actually students in a class that I teach here at Georgia Tech called the chemical engineering of of energy systems. And as part of that class, I asked the students to do a project on various different topics. And Stefan and Julian were in the same student group and they decided to focus on this question of of direct air capture and how to integrate it with um, various different renewable energy forms. So they were they were the motivating force behind the paper, particularly Stefan Farr, who was uh, actually visiting us at Georgia Tech from his university, which is TU Munich in Germany. Um, Having seen the quality of the work in the in the class, I suggested to Stefan that he actually develop this into a full paper. And that we bring a couple of other folks into the, into the picture. And those were Alice Lice Favaro and Anthony Giaruso or Tony Giaruso. And Alice is a, is an expert in forestry biomass and how forestry biomass might help us address climate change. And Tony Giaruso is actually an expert in geographic information systems. And it was really the two of them that were needed to be added to the team to be able to think about this on a global basis with regards to both including forestry as well as nuclear and PV, which was the original focus of what Stefan and Julian were working on, and then Tony to be able to map out the, uh, the resources. And then lastly, I collaborate very closely with Ryan Lively, who is a professor here in the School of Chemical and Biomolecular Engineering, on DAC technology. So the two of us were sort of providing the input with regards to how DAC technology could couple to these various different energy sources.
0: So your uh, paper is a spatially resolved paper, right? You're coupled with a geographic information system, so you're not just looking at these things in terms of uh, energy processes and flows like a normal chemical engineer would look at. You're actually looking at it as a kind of we might call it an envirospatial solution that encompasses the things like the availability of forests in different parts of the world and how it might couple with the demand for that in various parts of the world,
1: right? That's correct. Yeah. So we we used, as I say, geographic information systems, for example, to map out the availability of sunlight worldwide, sort of winds and where those were blowing, but also where there were potentially geographic storage for CO2. So we were looking at overlaying several different map layers. One was obviously the renewable energy itself, and the other was the CO2 sequestration potential. And it was important for us to think about that because one of the advantages of direct air capture is potentially the fact that you can site it on top of the resources that would be necessary to stick it in the ground for permanent sequestration. And so we wanted to understand was, well, you know, if you have a lot of forest, but none of that's on top of anything that's suitable to put the CO2 in, then essentially that might not be a very good resource. So we were looking at both of those particular issues.
0: There were the people who were the lead authors on this? Were they? Was it a single lead author that you had, or was it a co co first author?
1: I would say Stefan was really the lead author. Julian was a, is a, a mature student who came back and is actually studying at Georgia Tech, and he was really the person who motivated us to look at nuclear combined with DAC. We actually didn't think that that was going to be a particularly profitable angle, but he convinced us to look at it, and actually turns out that there's been quite a lot of interest in coupling nuclear energy with with recently so so it was a good addition to the to the overall paper
0: and so was the lead author was he a grad student or was he an undergrad or what this? What
1: so it's interesting because you know german academic system is slightly different from from that in the u.s i would argue he was a master's student at the time he did this work um he's now actually a phd student at tu munich so so he was a senior slash You know, masters level student working in this area and an extremely bright chap.
0: Okay, so you've given us an insight into the team. Where would find this paper if they want to read it?
1: I believe it's actually in in the Journal of CO2 Utilisation. So that's the uh, that's the journal in which it which eventually appeared. We tried several different journals and actually received a number of rejections from paper from from other journals, but that was the one that ultimately we ended up going to.
0: So talk to me about that. I'm really interested in that, and I'm, I'm sure our listeners are too. So did you revise the paper every time, or people just saying it was out of scope, or what?
1: Yeah, no, we revised the paper several times, even within the scope of the journal that it eventually ended up in, JCOU. and And the reason... Actually, that might be the Journal of Greenhouse Gas. So that's the thing. We actually tried it in several different journals and I'm actually trying now to, to, to struggle to recall the specific one it ended up being published in because of the, of the fact that it, that we had tried several different journals. Actually, yes, each time we got the feedback from the reviewers and we revised the paper significantly on each uh, occasion. We had started out with a much smaller main paper and had sent it actually into one of the Nature Energy journals because we thought it had that kind of broad appeal and, and Nature Energy wasn't interested in it. And then we went to another journal where we then the reviewers basically suggested that we take a lot of what we had put in the supporting information and actually make that the main focus of the paper. So we reorganized the paper along those lines to to bring much of what was in the supporting information into the main body of the paper itself
0: sounds a thoroughly painful publication process you've gone through. And I think that uh, often when, you know, without a podcast and direct connections at conferences and stuff like that, I think in many cases people just wouldn't realise the sheer misery that everyone else goes through to get a bloody paper published. It's not a pleasant process, is it? It takes a very long time, very hard to keep team cohesion on the project. I think that's one of the key challenges is just to keep plugging away at a pro- project when you've been rejected potentially multiple times, it's difficult to see any kind of light at the end of the tunnel, right?
1: Yeah, that's right. And, I mean, you know, in terms of how long it took to get the, the paper published, it was a long journey, uh, partly because of the, you know, as I say, going through a couple of journals which ended up rejecting the paper. And then even in the, in the final analysis, actually getting it into the journal itself, the review process there took a, took a long time. And as an editor of a journal myself, I can tell you that often the the biggest delay is is getting reviewers to actually respond and agree to review the paper. And even having agreed to review the paper, then getting them to actually send their, their comments back. That process can can extend for multiple months. And I believe in the case of this paper, it was over six months between our initial submission and the first time that we received feedback in order to to revise it. So yeah it takes it can take quite some time I think the paper emerged in something like twenty twenty one and I believe that the original work was done in 2019.
0: yeah that, that doesn't really surprise me in terms of my own experience of academic publication journey i mean I, I personally i try to be quite a good boy with review with reviews and I tend to drop whatever else I'm doing and get reviewed done I find that it's often the best way to deal with the review is if you just do it instantly right you just read the paper send the comments back straight away i often i very often review a paper just within like, two or three hours of receiving it it must be very very frustrating for a team like you and i you know i've had this experience myself of, you know waiting four five six months for review and all it amounts to is someone just sitting down for two hours and reading the bloody paper and then telling what they thought of it it's not a complicated process you just get on with it really in my view but anyway we digress enough about reviewer two and how dreadful he is or she is or- Let's get back to the meat of the paper. So, just one thing about your team. What was your personal role in this paper? What were you doing in this team?
1: So, I was working on some of the calculations along with uh, with Stefan in terms of uh, you know checking out that the way we were integrating the various different renewable energy sources made sense with the with the technology providing providing input on the technology parameters themselves as well as helping write the paper and edit the paper. So. My main role was really to, to check for technical correctness, check to see if we had missed specific issues around DAC and whether or not we should include those in the paper. So in the S, for example, in the supporting information, we have a go at how atmospheric mixing interacts with, with DAC and how, therefore, how closely spaced you could make your direct air contacting contactors. So that's in the SI rather than in the main body of the paper itself, because we decided that was something that we wanted to, to take on, but not something that was necessarily right in the, in the germane part of the paper itself.
0: Well, just as an aside, you should publish that because that's something that a lot of people have wondered about and there's touched on a lot of papers. And we definitely need a citable resource uh, that addresses that specific question of uh, you know, how close these contactors can be together before they start messing each other up, basically. So hopefully you'll you'll find a ways to carve that out to another paper. And if I might be so bold as to suggest, uh, if you'd like me or my married band of students to get on with this and help you form that into a paper, then you're very happy to do so. Uh, but if I wonder if I could now draw you on the the overall methods of the paper, so I've got an idea of fundamentally what you're doing, but not a very clear idea of how you did it.
1: Okay, okay. So so essentially, what we did was is we we tried to pose this in the way that we that we looked at the amount of energy that was available. You know, in a given resource, so for example, looking at solar thermal as a technology, you can work out if there's a certain amount of sunlight obviously hitting the uh, the surface of the earth in a particular place. You can figure out what the efficiency is by which you can extract that energy and turn it into the resources necessary for 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 direct air capture and then what we did was as we looked at. Again, because of the work I have done on direct air capture itself, we looked at the energy consumption required for direct air capture. And the energy consumption for direct air capture comes effectively in two basic forms for the type of air capture that we use. The first is electricity to effectively move the air through the contactor. And the, and it pull a vacuum on the contactor after you've pushed the air through it, and then the other form of energy is is in the form of low temperature heat, and so depending on the on the energy source producing electricity and heat, i.e. combined heat and power, can look a little different depending on the way that you're going to do it. So for example, burning biomass, you can burn the biomass and generate energy through essentially running the steam, boiling water, running the steam through a turbine, and then condensing that steam as a way of of providing the heat. So that's how the, the direct air capture system was integrated with sort of a biological or bex type system carbon capture and storage with bioenergy so we took the electricity from the from the uh, from the bex plant and actually used it to run dac so we call that BDAC, or bioenergy with direct air capture and what of course that does is it enables you to do both the sequestration of the carbon from the from the burning the woody biomass and use the energy that you generate to do direct air capture on the other hand wind energy doesn't really Lend itself so effectively to to integration with direct air capture because it doesn't generate any heat; it generates basically electricity. So what you're going to do is is, is do kind of the, the weird thing of using the the electricity as a means to deliver heat. On the other hand, geothermal has the ability again to generate heat and power from using the geothermal resource so each oh, technology- oh, let
0: me let me just interject because like kind of galloping away a bit here and there's a, there's a whole bunch of questions that come to my mind about stuff you've already said so oh. just to clarify crudely speaking what you're doing is the climb works process right so it's a an temperature vacuum swing aiming based low temperature DAC process as opposed to say an electro swing process like burdox or a high temperature uh reagent based process like um, uh, the carbon
1: engineering process right that's correct yes so so okay. the technology we've worked on here at Georgia Tech most most of the time is to use a, a low a pressure drop contactor in our case we use fibers and we use a, an amine ie a polyethylene amine type sorbent that is uh, impregnated into into the fiber so that's the that's the technology that we use and we've done a number of of simulation work and experimental work on demonstrating that that kind of uh, approach will will work.
0: It's your own your own proprietary tech, and you've got a physical uh, DAC device that you're then using to derive a set of experimental parameters, which you then put into your models. You're not taking somebody else's published third-party work and then basing your calculations on that, right? You've actually built a DAC thingy which you've measured, and then you're rolling this out as if it were scaled.
1: Right, so we actually did both, so we we benchmarked our system against uh, for example, global thermostats systems, so in two thousand and sixteen, I published a paper analyzing global thermostats approach, and we used that along with more recent work in the literature. To make sure that our DAC parameters, i.e., the consumption of electricity and heat, were sort of in the right range, if you like, because different different people have made different sets of assumptions around how the process will run, and that leads to quite a wide range of of potential energy uh, use for the uh, for the process.
0: So the other thing that you spoke about briefly is you're talking about electricity consumption in the plant. Now, I mean, you can use direct resistive heating to do. That, but it would be pretty stupid to do that because there's no leverage so are you using a jacobs ladder of heat pumps to to achieve the kind of low-grade heat temperatures that you need or are you just like allowing full steam ahead with resistive heating and kind of just taking that approach as if people would really do it which in practical terms they
1: wouldn't so that's there's two that's an interesting question Okay, so actually, if you look at some of the recent research work that's being done in this area, resistive heating is actually turning out to be potentially the right way to do this, because steam heating is actually quite difficult, particularly at a laboratory scale level. Now, the question is, is would you scale this up? Well, it's not immediately clear that, in fact, the advantages of using direct resistive heating, if you've got... Electricity being generated from renewable sources isn't easier than going through some other means by which you 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 generate the uh, the heat. But this, so, this point is worth labouring because it's a really yeah. important
0: part, I mean, it's a substantial. I think the dominant component, right? So there's there's a couple of issues here. So firstly, for high temperature heat and resistive heating doesn't have the obvious disadvantages that low temperature heat does. So you can step up heat quite efficiently, like a domestic heat pump does and then you can create a Jacob's ladder of heat pumps where you have the output of one heat pump feeding into the input of another heat pump and so with a couple of heat pumps you can get quite a step up right two stage heat pumps three stage heat pump that's kind of thing and you can get to industrial temperatures with that kind of approach if you're trying to get up to say 600 degrees centigrade and they're an over to do to do various calcining based technology then um, uh, technologies like direct resistive or electric arc are much more suitable because they they don't have trouble accessing the very high temperatures. And then the issue of efficiency isn't so much of a factor because these big step-ups, efficiency doesn't isn't dominated by the um by the heat pump economics in the same way that it would be a lower temperature, right? But if you're only stepping up, let's say, for example, if you're operating a DAC plant in a reasonably warm area of the world, not saying that you would but somewhere like Singapore or Indonesia or whatever, and where they might have a and your average ambient temperature of say 25 to 30 degrees centigrade, then you're only stepping up. You've only got a 70 degree step up. And to do that with a, um, I mean, a domestic hot water supply will run at typically about 55, 60 degrees centigrade, even on a relatively cold winter night. So, you know, you might have a minus 10 external temperature and a 60 degree or 55 degree output temperature of your boiler. So looking at in the region of 60 to 70 degrees step up. And then if you do a Jacob's ladder, you can do twice that you know get a second step up so going from ambient to the kind of 110 140 range that you need to do a steam sweep with this DAC is not too difficult so did you really find that the process that you're talking about that was less efficient to do a heat pump and it would be quite, quite,
1: quite surprising we, we didn't look at that to be quite honest so so the, the answer is, is we, we, so our approach on DAC is we're thinking, how do you minimize the capital on DAC? Because if you're going to build gigatons worth of DAC, if you start to get to, to very complicated heat pump situations, that could turn out to be quite a lot of capital that you spend rather than just essentially having a wire and using a wire as a heating element. So, so the question is, is, is the balance between efficiency which ultimately you may not care that much about if you have enough renewable energy anyway rather than the, the question of capital. So yes you could use a series of heat pumps. Yes that might turn out to be a way of of using atmospheric energy in in warmer places to make this happen, but that's probably going to be a lot more capital than than just a, a resistive wire.
0: Uh it certainly is a lot more capital. Issue is to do that at scale, it's very hard to just regard this as a series of a sheddable load electricity-wasting plants, basically, that we can turn on and off at will. And in fact, many of the studies that I've seen of that found that the capital cost was so high that it actually makes sense to use solar and batteries. So even when you're looking at the very significant co- cost of using lithium-ion batteries to provide continual power to that plant, it still works out as an economic advantage because the DAC plants themselves are so expensive that buffering this electricity through batteries makes sense. Um, is your vision, therefore, for a, a series of um, uh, sheddable load DAC plants that are designed to be very inexpensive, sweep up surplus power on the brick?
1: I actually, no. Our thought is is that the DAC capital will be somewhat expensive, Itself and so you aren't going to want to have a low capacity factor on your DAC capital. So you're going to want to have actually dedicated power sources and energy sources for your DAC system, but you want to make your DAC system itself as cheap as you can to avoid, uh, you know, obviously the the very high capital costs that are going to come with scaling this to, to significant levels. I think the interesting question around DAC, right, at the very heart of, of if you like, the DAC problem, is how rapidly does the cost of, of, of DAC come down with the scaling of the technology? In other words, if we built, you know, 10 million, 100 million uh, tons of CO2 removal capacity, what would be the price per ton of CO2 at that kind of scale? Given that today we're doing it at thousands of tons, um, and we have costs in the multiple hundreds of dollars. So how does that? Well, cost this is 10? a very,
0: this is a very interesting question. It's a diversion from your main paper, I think, but it's still I'm keen to discuss because it's one of the key unresolved questions. So the way that I see it is kind of twofold. I think there are two sort of principal issues you've got here. So a direct air capture plant consists of two fundamental sets of components you've got stuff that we've been making for 100 years and stuff we haven't been making for 100 years is the sort of fundamental concept of it so the steel the pipe work the pressure vessels the heat exchangers all of that is very well understood technology and you know while a 1930s heat exchanger might be somewhat suboptimal compared to a 2020s um heat exchanger, they're fundamentally the same technology. They're not going to get enormously cheaper because these things aren't on a greatly reducing cost curve at any more time. But then you've got the stuff that's DAC specific, right? You've got the amine-washed microcellulose that you're talking about, or various other different contact technologies. And that very much is a function of a learning curve. And the price today may be very different from the price tomorrow, because by tomorrow we've learned how to do it rather better. The second aspect of this is that whole approach is not as simple as it might be because there are potential ways that we might have a great leap forward in terms of that capacity that uses very different approaches. So at the moment, you might, for example, look at some of the marine membrane technologies. Uh, You might look at electro swing, you know, Burdox, and I think Machine Zero uses something similar to that as well. So those technologies potentially give a very different cost profile to the carbon engineering and climate works, what you might call rather cruelly legacy technologies, right? I mean, this is, it's not quite a mature space yet, but we're certainly seeing potential new generation technologies start to move aside the the first generation. That's my personal view. I might be wrong in time, but um, that's how I see it. So, just wonder if you can comment on that, really?
1: Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think the answer at the moment is we don't know what DAC technologies are going to win. There is a, a whole broad range of them that could be developed. I think you're right about sort of looking at the electro swing type processes. Again, those are at a much lower TR technological readiness level compared to something like, as you say, the, the Climeworks or the, or the carbon engineering or the global thermostat approaches where, you know, much of, as you say, the technology like the vacuum pumps, the fans, et cetera, mature, but the coupling of those together into an effective system is still being explored and i guess the the thing that we have seen there is is that the cost of those kinds of systems can come down substantially depending on the ability to increase the productivity of the of the say amine adsorbent by improving cycle times improving the the lifetime of the adsorbent and then of course just manufacturing some of the uh, the devices themselves and driving down the cost of that manufacturing process. I mean, if you can imagine, you know, direct air capture at the level of or units at the level of cars, we make you know millions of cars with uh, with ver- relatively low cost. So if the if the DAC technology were were in that format, maybe the cost would come down substantially per DAC unit. Uh, even though you would say much of the technology is already mature, the integration is still a fairly significant part of the uh, of the overall cost. Um, so yeah, I, no, I,
0: I completely agree with you. I mean, when I, I actually had this very same argument with, I'm not sure if it was the CEO of Climeworks, but one of the lead guys at Climeworks when I went to visit their plant. I said, look, you know, you're, you're, you're on a hiding to nothing with the approach that you're taking at the moment because you're basically every single plant you're building is a, a bespoke item. It's like building schools, right? Whereas if you look at, you know, how the private sector deals with that, they don't make every new building an architectural masterpiece. So they have a cookie cutter template for you know every cost or every mcdonald's you know there are sites where they not quite the same but in, in the majority of cases one mcdonald's looks very much like another mcdonald's right there's a systematization benefit that comes from that they've optimized the design they get it right and then they roll it out right and i remember a paper a while ago which i which i thought was really insightful and i then lost and i've never been able to find again said the key the key elements of the technology that falls dramatically in price that it's simple to make the next one, right? So compare say, silicon chips in cars, for example, right? Silicon chips are much simpler to manufacture, even though they are internally complex, right? And the other thing is that they are manufactured for scale, right? So the replicable lack of customization on each product, so you're not making a new one every single time. You're just repeating the old one, but making a new version thereof. And the thing that you are making is, is simple in its manufacture or internal structure or, or both. And I thought that was a very smart way of thinking about it. So I just wondered if I could return to some of the stuff that you were saying earlier. I want to try and understand the cost, both capital and energy costs. So if you're thinking about the, uh, an implemented climb works type system, what kind of energy input is going into the plant in terms of low grade heat versus all of the other uh, demand that might be coming. So you've got some vacuum uh, energy that's required. You've got some propulsive energy that's required to force the air through the the, um, the contactors. But then you've also got a kind of we you might call like office costs of people who run the plant have got to have lights and computers and things like that. So when it comes to the, the sort of total energy budget for a plant, are we talking like 80% of it goes in the steam suite and, and it's only, say 20% of everything else or, or is it much more balanced?
1: Yeah. So the answer is you're, you're spot on. It's about 20 to 25% is the electrical input to drive the air and, and, and pull a mild vacuum. And about 75, 80% is, is the heat required to drive off the uh, the CO2 from the adsorbent in the case that we're talking about of a of a climb or global thermostat type low temperature solid adsorbent swing process the the main point being that the that the heat required is about how much CO2 is inside the inside the object relative to the the size of the object itself in other words how how densely can you get the CO2 to go into the object i moles per gram or millimoles per gram or moles per kilogram of of contactor relative to the the heat because the parasitic load in the system is really heating and cooling the contactor rather than anything else and then you have the energy that is right. inevitable that, which is yeah, that came up with e- the CO2
0: yeah that came up on another interview and we didn't get a, a full answer for that mainly because I got sidetracked and Interrupted the guy before. I, I think I interrupted my own question before I finished asking it. But what, what is the kind of deadweight thermal load? If I'm running a DAC plant and 80% of my costs for energy are for the steam sweep and not for everything else, then what proportion of that 80% is heating up the dead weight of the plant? And what proportion of it is actually providing thermal energy to, uh, to debind the CO2 from the adsorbent?
1: it's about 50/50 so it's about 40% of so of the 80% about 50% of the 80% is is parasitic load of heating the the contactor itself and about 50% is actually desorbing the CO2 now you can't you so tru- crudely
0: put that to so crudely put you're wasting almost half of your uh, energy input as dead weight heat
1: yeah that's correct that's correct.
0: So that, why, that's why
1: I mean, piece that we want to minimize by trying to figure out new ways to, to build these contactors with lower heat capacity materials and by increasing the amount of adsorbent that's inside the contactor relative to the weight of the contactor.
0: Okay. So you, there are two ways of doing that. You've got, so the adsorbent itself, the, the actual functional material. So it will have a combination of substrate groups. Or substrate material and then functional groups or a functional material depending on whether you build it as a two-phase or a single-phase material so you know you could have it like in theory you can have it a little bit like a radish where you've got a um uh where your the red bit of the radish is just on the outside and then you've got an awful lot of radish in the middle that hasn't got any red bit on it or you can have it something which is a bit more like candy floss where you know this is single material and the contacts you know there's less dead weight because Every part of the material does the same job, right? Uh, There's also a thermal dead weight that comes from the balance of plant as well, isn't it? Because you're not just heating up the material, you're heating up the can it's in, right? So it's a little bit like, you know, when you pour coffee into your coffee cup in the morning, you're not going to drink your coffee straight out of the kettle, but you can kind of drink it straight out of the coffee cup when you poured it because there's quite a lot of cup and that cools coffee down pretty damn quickly. Like within a, a minute or two, the coffee's at a drinkable temperature,
1: right? Yep. Yeah. So the answer is, you know, again, people, are, this is, this is what, you know, the current generation of, of, of DAC companies are working on is reducing that parasitic load by thinking about lower thermal mass on the contactor. For example, using an aluminium housing rather than using, say, a steel housing. Thinking about how to make the contactor out of maybe the adsorbent polymer itself rather than having to have the adsorbent polymer Impregnated into a, say, a, a large silica or alumina silicate monolith, right? So, so the idea is, is, is how, you know, and that's what these companies will optimize over time is how to arrive at a system whose parasitic load is substantially less than the 50% that I just quoted you. So this is why, you know, as part of the, the cost scaling, you're going to have cost scaling of the capital and also cost scaling, obviously, of the, of the energy use because both will improve over time
0: so help me understand why we're where we're at at the moment i mean like the plants that are made at the moment are made of steel rather than say plastic which would have a lot less thermal capacity and it would also be a lot less thermally conduct. so you'd lose a lot less heat to the environment and you'd also would take a lot less heat to heat up the thing it's made of right uh, and most of the so for example carbon uh, climate sorry climate system is packed bed so you've got something which one of our previous guests described as tic-tacs are coated in an adsorbent material now why don't people use something which is more like candy floss or a brillo pad or a sponge or something like that where you have much more porosity and the material is kind of shot through with this adsorbent material rather than just having on the surface of what are essentially like tiny little tennis balls inside the machine.
1: Mm-hmm. So that's what we use. So we use fibers. Those fibers are about 50 percent porous and about 50 percent solid. Those fibers, the 50 percent solid, about 25 percent of that is polymer, and about 75 uh, percent of it is silica impregnated with the polyethylene amine. So we're able to what, get oh, to, What's a What's a porous fiber? I mean, I don't really understand what porous fiber is. Okay. So, so one of the technologies that very prevalent is something like a membrane technology. You've heard of sort of reverse osmosis membranes, right? So so what we have is we have the ability to take a a solid polymer, drop it through an air gap, put it into water. And when it goes into water, it phase inverts and comes out of the solution. And when it does that in phase inversion out of solution, it produces a very porous material. That is the way that actually membrane <coughs> materials are.
0: Give me an example operating. of something that I might find at home that has a similar structure, even if it's on a different scale.
1: That's it's hard for me. Kind of I, I don't know. It's an industrial technology. That's
0: yeah, a- is it a little bit like your jeans, or a little bit like a scouring pad in your kitchen, or is it a bit like a sponge in your bathroom? What you know? Give me an example of how the material fundamentally is made, in terms of what so it's, it's about
1: so it's about say a millimeter in diameter, okay. So that's sort of the, the size of the fiber and the fiber has pores, it's porous throughout and has pores that are, you know, of order, you know, hundreds of, of microns inside a, a thousand micron sized object. So it's shot through with pores, and in those pores are silica particles, which are of order sort of hundreds of nanometers. And inside those hundreds of nanometer particles are pores, which are of order, you know, 30 or 40 nanometers. And then inside of that is the the polyethylene amine, which is of order 20 nanometers in thickness, let's say. So it's a very...
0: A good way of thinking about it is it might be like a very fluffy fruitcake is probably...
1: Yeah, I mean the fibers themselves you can, you can pull on them, right? So, so, so they have some, some, and you can bend them. So they have some some structural integrity so that, for example, you can put them into a device ordered in a, in a, like in a tube bundle, right? Like in a, like in a heat exchanger, you've got a tube bundle. We have bundles of fibers. The only point being is, is we have hundreds of thousands of fibers in a bundle um, and that's a structured material. So actually the pressure drop through, through a small length of that material is not that, that great. So, so this is the, so that's different, as you say, from coding the material on the surface of a, uh, of a, of a device. This would have material throughout. So we're able to get, say, more uh, active adsorbent material into the contactor. Now, it turns out... That's
0: can, really, that's really interesting. So talk to me about how that, that fiber works. So there's the, does the air, does the carbon dioxide dissolve into the fiber at a macro scale and then diffuse through the solid fiber and then contact the you know, contact the absorbent or does it flow as air through these tiny tiny little gaps that so are just a few microns wide and then stick to those because uh, it yeah, sounds so like quite hidden like quite buried inside this structure that's got many layers of structure so you've got these individual fruit cakes which are like the long strings of the fibers but then those fruit cakes like kind of wrapped around each other to make a big sort of like plaited fruit cake.
1: So we have done woven fiber mats. That's one of the one of the ways we can do this. We can actually just as I say have them as a as a bundle like spaghetti. Imagine taking your spaghetti and just holding it in a in a bundle. That would be that would be something that we can also do where each piece of spaghetti is one of these fibers except now instead of being solid it's it's highly porous. The way it works is, is the air has a, a certain resistance to get to the surface of the fiber. Then there's a certain resistance to diffuse through the macropores of the, uh, of the fiber material. And then there is a certain resistance to diffuse through the micropores of the silica. And then there's another resistance to diffuse into the, to the active polymer material itself. And, and in certainly in the modeling, what we have done is we have posed this as a, as a multi-step Diffusion process and uh, that that occurs within this material, and we can show that, for example, you know our models match the experimental behavior of these kind of fiber systems. So, so, so that's yeah, it's like a bloody
0: yeah. complicated path that each carbon dioxide molecule has got to take. So, yeah. let us just recap that. So, you've got a bundle of fibers which is like spaghetti, and then each spaghetti is like someone's gone through the spaghetti with a needle and poked loads of loads and loads of little holes in the spaghetti. And then you've stuffed in these little kind of like raisins of substrate silica material. And then on the surface of the raisin, they've got like kind of icing sugar dusting of this uh, amine-based polymer. So there's yep. like, there's an awful lot of, you've got structure within structure within structure there. There's a lot, there's a lot going on. It's yes, there of, is. It's fractal, right?
1: Yeah, and, and actually helps. the last oh, level yeah. that, that sugar coating is actually throughout the silica particle because the silica particle itself is porous. So you've got right. a large, large, large amount of surface area that you can use to, as I say, to have the polymer in it. But what's critical, as you say, is a complicated system is to balance the, each of those phases and exactly how much of each one of them you have. So you have a porous enough but fiber, you have a porous enough silica the particle.
0: Itself Sorry? Does the spaghetti itself allow carbon dioxide to diffuse through it, or does it rely on going? Does it rely on the air going through the holes? And re- it relies on
1: the air going through the holes. The the diffusivity of CO two through the polymer itself is is very low. But the porosity is so high that that isn't actually a real problem in this particular case. The CO two can arrive at the at the silica particles and then arrive at the surface of the of the polyethylene amine, which is the, the polymer that has the, the groups that are necessary to capture the CO two. That all that mass transfer is not is not particularly a, a, a problem, actually.
0: So why Do you have to have two polymers? Why can't you make the spaghetti out of the reagent polymer and and the middle
1: polymer? You can't you can't spin that particular material.
0: You you can't spin it or it can't be spun. They're not the same thing.
1: Okay, that's correct. We do not spin that material because for example our phase inversion of that material wouldn't work. Now, could someone potentially take polyethylene amine and try to make a fibrous mat out of it through some other approach? That's entirely something that someone could look at. We we don't do it. Could someone do it? Maybe there's an electro spinning process that would enable that to actually happen. But right now we don't do that. Remember, one of our goals is and one of the reasons why, for example, a, a, a randomly oriented fiber mat in the direction of the air that the problem with that is, is it has relatively high pressure drop. The idea of our system is is that you have, as I say, oriented spaghetti-like bundles, and the pressure drop down an oriented spaghetti bundle is very different than, say, that same length with randomly oriented fibres.
0: So the idea is that it's like getting a pack of spaghetti and blowing, like filling your mouth with sticks of dried spaghetti and then blowing down them. You can easily breathe in and out. Whereas if you've got oh. a plate cooked cook spaghetti and you faceplant into the cooked spaghetti, after a few too many beers, you can't really breathe. You have to pull your face back out of the spaghetti before you can start breathing again, right?
1: Right, yeah. The random orientation of the spaghetti, along with its rather sticky nature, would not make it very easy to breathe through. So the same thing is true um, here. Now, again, you can make thinner, smaller fibres, and maybe you can mat them together in a way in which you can have a relatively high degree of porosity and you have enough... Groups to capture the CO2 so that when you blow the CO2 through it, you can, you can remove enough from the, from the air. But again, this is why I'm saying we shouldn't, you know, assume we've arrived at the final solution for CO2 capture with DAC, right? I think there's many potential new materials we might discover, like other types of polymers that include those groups attached to the polymer and we could just make a single polymer system people up or we could maybe make a comp- compressor system together and and make it make it out of just the adsorbent itself with no dead mass at all so so those are those are entirely reasonable directions for research
0: so your your system is a little bit like uh, it's kind of like the opposite of global thermostat because they've got a monolith with loads of holes in the monolith whereas you've got something which is a little bit perhaps structurally like the fuel rods in a nuclear reactor. You've got a kind of uh, lattice of these rods, and then the air flows around the rods. Is that correct? Do I understand that correctly?
1: That's exactly it. So So the the monolith has the walls, and the air is going between inside the walls. In our case, the air is going around the outside of a fibre. Okay, and
0: all of these fibres point in the same direction. So the idea being you get with a similar technology. So Global Thermostat, the thing that's most impressive to me about Global Thermostat is that they've got these this two-scale airflow. So on a macro scale, it's all laminar. But when you look at the scale of individual molecules, because they're sort of bouncing around in Brownian motion inside the laminar airflow, then the individual molecules actually get bounced around enough so that they pretty much guarantee the on their way through the contactor even though the air parcel they started in doesn't necessarily hit the walls, which is kind of a, a mad thing to think about. It's a little bit like a shipper's thesis, right? So you have an air parcel and then that air parcel remains in laminar flow, but yet all of the, all of the air that constituted that air parcel has long ago left the air parcel, right? It's a, it's a curious way of thinking about this air parcel, which is on one level still the same air parcel, but yet consists of none of the same components as it did when it started out its journey. So I find that quite a confusing concept, really. Yeah, a
1: little yeah bit like concept out.
0: diffusion, admit, right? Yeah, you get such diffusion, but the idea that the, the, the air parcel completely loses its integrity as a result of diffusion. So it's still an identifiable air parcel, but nothing in it remains the same. It's kind of a little bit like me in two weeks' time. I will have replaced all of the water in my body because I'll have drunk and weed all my water away, but, you know, I'm still ostensibly the same human. Even though I'm not made of the same stuff, which is, it's just quite a weird thought, really. But anyway, you, the, the other thing that struck me about your contact, I'm trying to understand how you make this sort of plastic spaghetti that's got so many holes. In it. I mean, you put the holes in it, or is it no? As the I way
1: say, it, what happens is is that so this is a very standard technology that's actually used to make reverse osmosis uh, membrane systems. So so what you're doing is is you're you're making a solid polymer. That has that that is dissolved in a in a solvent, and that that solvent dope is actually going through an air gap and then through into a water bath. And when, what happens is is that that water bath causes the solvent to leave the, the the polymer very rapidly, and so the polymer can't solidify except in the places where it already is, and so it forms a very porous. Material, so that's that's the the essence of it is being able to make this porous um, polymer by effectively removing the solvent very rapidly from. Yeah, so
0: the it's a very system. it's a very similar process making sponge iron, right? So when yeah. you when you sparge um, iron with hyd- iron oxide with hydrogen and you sweep away all of the oxygen from what was previously rust as far as I understand this process, which is not very well, then you end up with a very fluffy kind of iron and, and you're doing you're doing a process which is not dissimilar to what you're doing. So you're saying that those manufacturing of those fibers is is quite standard. Is that standard yes. chemical industry technique then or what?
1: Yes, it is a standard. So so we've been what, making what else
0: is made what else is made using that technique?
1: So so as I say, we make hollow fibre membrane systems that way. So so that's the origin of the technology is actually hollow fibre membranes. There, there's a skin layer that actually is on the surface of this, as well as the the high degree of porosity. But essentially, that technology is 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 mature uh, for making for making membrane modules. So that's the that's that's sort of the origin of the technology, and actually was was you know quite like fiber. The,
0: the shrink, doing like the fibers a shrink wrap in this version. So they've got a kind of like a, an outer skin that's continuous, but the fiber itself is made of lots of holes, like a Swiss cheese.
1: Yeah, yeah. So that's right. So you can make you can you can control the process such that you can get what's called a skin layer on the surface of this highly porous material. We don't want skin layers because we want good diffusion. But there's the possibility of doing that. And that's what's done in the membrane technology.
0: Okay. so if you're buying insulate or similar, then uh, would that be uh, the way that that technology would work?
1: No, I don't think so. I think th- this technology is used essentially in in membrane materials for, say, water purification or gas purification. So, so it's used in industrial processes. It's not really used as as a consumer product in that sense. If you think about insulation or any of that kind of stuff, that's glass fibers, and those are those are essentially spun differently. And this process. This is this is what people don't realise about fibre spinning is is there are multiple different ways you can spin fibres one of which is solution spinning and that's what I'm describing.
0: Okay, I mean this is all new to me and quite important, which is why I've gone down this particular rabbit hole, but it's all very interesting. So what you're saying is like 3M insulate material that you might have in gloves or a hat or whatever, very inexpensive material, you can buy a hat from a gas station for like $5 that is made of insulate material, it's quite a high performing warm hat. Right? right so you're, you're saying that that's not using this technology so i always imagined that those would be like um a tube like an empty tube what you're describing is something which is rather different where the fiber material is continuous but it's got loads of holes within that continuity the sort of macro continuity it, it's not like a kind of an empty pipe which is how i did it. you're describing something which has got lots of smaller holes in it but it may be that that's not how those um insulation fibres for clothing are made, it may be a different process, but that's just the right. brand i have committed with, so I just mentioned
1: it. I mean so, if you want to really go if you want to go further down this rabbit hole, we can actually make the fibers so that we have that porous layer as an outside layer in an annulus, and actually have an inside bore where there is a, the ability to flow a liquid through the bore of the fiber, where again we actually have a, a lumen layer that enables us to insulate that, that bore from the porous layer. So we can make it so that we can flow a liquid down about a five, four or five hundred micron diameter bore, and then have a two to three hundred radius, further radius of porous material outside that um, continuous bore. So we can actually flow liquid through the system and have gas flowing on the outside of the system simultaneously. And if you do hollow fibre membranes, that's why it's hollow fibre, because actually then you do indeed have diffusion from the gas space through and then into the lumen where you extract the, the material that has diffused through to the to the interior of the of the system
0: that's quite similar to the way way your lungs work, right? So you've got the two phases that are working and they're separated by the membrane in your, is it alveoli? You've got an alveoli. So you're describing a a Dax system, a potential Dax system in the future that that could have exchanged carbon dioxide selectively across a membrane and then carry it away in a liquid or are you suggesting that we would put the heat carrying substances into the liquid and then... Pushed into the fiber so heating the fiber along this length what's the purpose of hollow fibers in in that process
1: exactly we can use the the boards to do the heating so instead of doing the steam heating of the of the fibers on the outside we'd actually provide heating and cooling on the inside of the fiber and that enables us actually to so we talked very some time ago now about the parasitic load right so now you've got your contactor that's hot what do you do yeah. You run cooler water through the bores and you extract that heat and then you use that water, you heat it some more. And that becomes the uh, thing that you use to do the desorption. So now you can actually recover the heat that you used in the parasitic part of the cycle. Um, so actually that that can improve the energy efficiency significantly.
0: I'm surprised that you can mean for the amounts of heat down such thin little pipes. I mean, I would have thought that you, it would just get cold within a couple of millimetres and then that would be the end of that.
1: No, it's, it's again, if you flow the, the water through slowly enough, right? So you don't have to flow it through really fast. If you flow the water through slowly enough and because the length, see, one of the issues here is people don't quite understand the length scales, right? We're talking about four to 500 microns. So the heat transfer distances are tiny. So the delta T that you need to drive the heat into the liquid in the bore is very, very small. So you can actually recover a significant fraction of the heat. Again, not heating up the, the fiber, not heating up the liquid in nor- an enormous amount, but still being able to recover most of the sensible heat that you left inside the, the module.
0: So you're saying that by driving fluids in through potentially very small temperature steps, you can really efficiently apply heat to the membrane rather than pushing it through. And is that, is that a cyclical process or a continuous process? Would you be? It's cyclical. Providing that heat? Okay, so it's still heat, hot, cold, hot, cold, hot, cold. So could right. you a conti- continuous process? We use the membrane selectivity um, with hollow fibers to, to extract the, um, uh, to, ex- to extract the CO2 into the center of the fibre, into the lumen of the fibre, or is
1: that not possible? So, so again, that is something that you could do if the concentration of the CO2 were high enough. For air systems, that just won't work. The concentration is too low. To drive the CO2 into the bore requires pressurizing the air to drive the CO2 in, and there's just no way you can afford to do that. Now, if the CO2 concentration is higher, then, then it becomes actually feasible to potentially look at that. And people have looked at membrane systems, as I just described, for flue gas capture as opposed to air capture. But for air capture, that's extremely difficult because of the, the, the pressures required to drive the uh, CO2 into the lumen. We, we've looked at that.
0: So you're saying that there's no kind of selective fluid that you can push through the lumen of the fibres to allow those um, uh, hollow fibres to act as a transfer membrane. You would only ever use these lumens as a way of transferring heat into the substrate in a very efficient fashion. That That's, as I understand it, the catch,
1: right? Yeah, that's correct. Now, again, if you think about these hollow fibres in the context of water separation that that is what's done but but again that's because you can pressurize the liquid a uh, saline liquid water such that the water will go into the the pure water will go into the bore that can be done but the but the but doing this for air is just not really feasible because it's so difficult to compress air efficiently as opposed to pumping liquid water efficiently so
0: do these just you're talking about reverse osmosis membrane technology, right? So you're squeezing yeah. seawater from one side and you get fresh water out the other. So I, yeah. I kind of had in my head that this was like a sort of two tanks and with a membrane in between them. But what you're describing is something which is more like a bundle of hair, right? Is that, is that how these things work in practice? So, I mean, obviously yeah. the hairs have a higher surface area, but you've got these fibers with it. So, in terms of the thickness of the hollow fibres, then how how thick are they? Are they comparable to human hair or a Thousand microns, or? which is yeah. which
1: is about. It's a little bit thicker than human hair. You can you can you can definitely see that they're that they're thicker. So mm-hmm. thousand to two thousand microns is sort of the range in which in which we think you know we can we can spin them at that diameter with with reasonable. You know, repeatability, you may you potentially can go smaller, but it gets harder. And if you want to put a bore inside of them, obviously, you know, you have to have a bit more space in order to accommodate the bore.
0: You talk of, you talk about spinning. What, what do you mean? I mean, what, what do you mean by spinning? I mean, spinning So a I mean, I'm literally,
1: I've got a, I've got a drum and I'm, I'm taking a yeah. fiber up onto the drum and that fiber is being pulled through a, is being essentially pressurized to go through a spinneret. So, so you have a spinneret. You're 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 creating the the fiber out of the spinneret. It goes through a phase inversion process and then gets taken up on a drum on the other side. So So it is literally spinning.
0: Yeah. So you're pulling it out. Um, you're you're creating the fiber. And as far as I understand that, the fibers are created by um, a two-phase liquid contact. So when you make nylon, for example, you've got one chemical and then you pour another chemical on top of it and you get a layer of nylon between the two. And as you pull this sheet of nylon out, you then remove the barrier between the two chemicals and they form more nylon,
1: right? So Yeah, that's that's the that's the nylon spinning approach. Now we again, what we have is we have a dope. That dope is got the solvent in it and it's got the polymer in it. That dope goes through a spinneret to make the fibre material, then that drops through water, which causes this phase inversion, as I say, which causes the, the solvent to leave the fiber very rapidly. That creates the porosity, and then that porous material is then taken up on a drum and is constantly pulled through the system, right? So that's the, that's the idea of the fiber spinning. And that's what's done, as I say, for solution spinning as opposed to, um, say, hot melt spinning or, 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 or electro spinning or other means by which you make the actual fiber itself.
0: Yeah, uh, this is a little pretty new to me and to some extent quite core cool, to so what your are is describing. So are you using those um, solution spun fibers in your test bed reactor
1: then or not? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So we we make modules of those those fibers and then we use we blow air over the surface of those fibers that cap. Well, again, having put materials into the fibers to to capture the CO2 and then we we're able to regenerate those fibers just by heating them up. And that heating process is the is the is the key piece of this is how do you most efficiently deliver heat into the fibers so that you can rapidly remove the CO2 and, and create the product stream?
0: So this all sounds very clever, but instead of wasting your time why, writing academic papers, why don't you set up a factory making stuff and then sell it deployment? Because your stuff sounds an awful lot more sophisticated than their tic-tacs that are covered in um, this PEA material or something similar. So why, why don't you just sell the fiber stuff?
1: So we are working on that. Okay. So, so, so the answer is, is that, you know, we are in the process of trying to f- to go to the next scale with these with these fibers and making these fibers. So so I you know, again, my research area is the modeling and simulation of these systems. My colleague, who is one of the authors on the original paper that we started discussing, Ryan Lively, he's the person who's actually making these fibers. And yes, they are being talked about. You know, he is and has talked about the idea of scaling these up. And we've, we've been applying for grants to the government, for example, to build the next scale of the of this kind of system. To be able to demonstrate it.
0: Okay, um, and so yeah, have you spoken to Climeworks about selling it to them? It sounds quite sophisticated compared to what's available on the market at the moment, right?
1: Now we, we, we haven't talked to Climeworks about that. Uh, they have their own system, and they're they're pushing on their on their technology development. And I'm sure they they would argue that their their materials system have certain advantages relative to to what I've described. So so certainly, yeah, it's it's not something that we have done, but again we we think that with the regards to direct air capture technology there are going to be a series of of developments which will which will drive down the the parasitic load of of heat that the system experiences because of the either the ability to recover it reducing the heat capacity of the material in which you you suspend your your adsorbent or even being able to get to the point of making the, the fibers or, or some contact directly out of the adsorbent itself.
0: So in terms of the mass of these fibers, what proportion of the mass is the macro fiber, what proportion of it is the silicate raisins and what proportion of it is the active polymer?
1: So again, you know, making sure I'm trying to do this off the top of my head, right? The effectively it's about 25% of the polymer, 75% of the silica and, and then the silica has in it about maybe half a gram of, 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 uh, adsorbent per gram of silica. So it's sort of that sort of ratio. So you end up with, with, for example, capacities at the fiber level of about one millimole of uh, CO2 per gram of fiber. That's sort of the the benchmark that we've been, that we've been hitting to be able to do this is sort of one millimole per gram.
0: There's an awful lot of raisins in your raisin pudding, right? Yeah,
1: yeah. There's a lot of silica in. So, so these fibers, we push them to the limit of, of what we can spin, reducing the amount of polymer down to the lowest level we can because we know it's just basically dead material. So that's, that's one of the, you know, the things that we've worked on optimizing, or I should say more clearly, Ryan has worked on optimizing over the past, you know, five to six years. So
0: the, the silica, Bits, do they start off in the mixture, or do you kind of push them into the spaghetti later?
1: No, no. We start with them in the mixture, but we start with the PEI out of the mixture. So, so we use a methanol. We dissolve the PEI in a methanol, and then we we actually soak the fibers in this pei solution and the pei will will go into the fibers and actually is is more stably attaches to the silica than it does to any other part of the fiber then we wash the fiber and then we have essentially the pei inside the silica inside the fiber which is our piece of spaghetti so so with that 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 can be done and by the way what that enables us also to do is if by chance we ruin the 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 pei because we oxidize it or something we can then actually take that, put it back in a methanol PEI solution and regenerate the module so that it can be used again. So we don't have to remake the module.
0: Yeah, so you can just strip off all of the active ingredient and then put it back with another batch. Of it. So yes. it's like a kind of factory refurbished version, right? Yeah. Um, okay, I had a hugely important question, and I was I cannot remember what it was about. It's very frustrating. I was just about to ask it, and then I got... Sucked into your uh, concentrating on the very interesting thing you were just saying there. So yeah, yeah, how do you connect pumps and valves and stuff? These hollow fibers, I mean, they must be absolutely tiny. So how do you make? So it
1: they're in they're connection? in bundles, and and yeah. the, the pipes and stuff are connected to the bundle rather than to to the individual. Now, in terms of how you get the liquid into the bore, basically what you have is just like a heat exchanger. You have a heat exchanger tube. You have a you pop the fibers in in a in a in a layer where the fibers are actually the into that layer, and then you chop it so that you have the fibers just um, flush to the end, and then you you're able to pump the liquid in, and the fight will go through just the bore of the fiber. So it's it's essentially so, like to, a heat to, exchange to,
0: tube. To give a to give a kitchen version of this, you're creating a. It's like you have these spaghetti, um, and then you might mix them in with icing, and then wait for the icing to go off, and then you cut through the icing and cut the end of the spaghetti off as well. Because the, the spaghetti is hollow. And therefore you can pass fluid down them. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So it's yeah, you imagine stacking the bundle so that all the ends are, are essentially aligned, then sticking a, sticking, a, you know, a gooey substance in our case, a, you know, a, and then, and then just chopping that off so that you have everything perfectly aligned and then flowing into the. Into it and out the other end, and come out the come out the other end. So the liquid kind of goes through a through the through the 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 uh, centres of the fibre, and then the air is just around the outside. It's just blown around the outside.
0: I've been in this field for about a decade, and I've listened to a remarkable number of podcasts and videos, and been to meetings. No one's covered anything like this before, so I'm kind of fascinated. Really, I think that's pretty cool. I've learned a lot from that. But well, what I haven't learned very much about, which is uh, a little bit like waiting for God, though, is that don't piss anything about your paper. So we've got a, a fascinating series of rabbit holes, which doesn't appear to be very much about what you study. So you're actually talking about the low carbon heat. So you've talked about how these plants are made, but uh, you haven't talked about where you get your heat from. Not very much. So... Right. If you look at low temperature heat. It's about one hundred and ten degrees centigrade. You get it from geothermal. We get it from burning stuff. You get it from nuclear. And and you've got a geographical map where all of this stuff comes from. Is that that's correct? That's what you've done in the paper, right?
1: Yes, exactly. And what what we've tried to do is demonstrate that basically, if we wanted to do scale DAC up, the the limitations are not really our sources of these types of energy or the the sequestration potential that that we have to put the CO two in the ground. So. We, we shouldn't be worried about whether or not we have enough, enough of those resources. Now, do we have enough capital to build these systems? That's a different matter. But certainly, certainly in terms of the energy resources that we have available, both renewables and nuclear, we certainly have enough available. And another rabbit hole for maybe for another time is we've also looked at how to integrate these direct air capture systems with natural gas combined cycle plants. And so we can actually use the low temperature heat from the, low, from natural natural gas combined cycle plants to drive DAC and actually have carbon negative natural gas combined cycle plants.
0: I think I've heard somebody else talk about that before about using the low-grade heat. So is that also similar in your nuclear power? So I've yes. I've done some work on nuclear power where the idea is you're using nuclear power as purely as a thermal source, right? Because nuclear power is, as an electricity source has got inherent inefficiencies because you've got to turn the nuclear heat to electricity and then you're turning it Potentially back into thermal power as well if you want to. and I mean, like, you know, electric nuclear heating, right? Uh, but you can also use the nuclear heat directly. And instead of having the low grade heat coming off the heat exchangers when you try to generate your electricity and then using that as a heat source, I've considered using nuclear power stations directly. So how does your paper, this, you, you have dedicated thermal nuclear power stations. Or are you talking about conventional steam cycle electricity generating nuclear power stations which use your processes heat
1: sink yeah so we, we're using we 're not changing the steam cycle because we need both power and steam right so so what we did is we we just used the the low temperature heat from the from the nuclear and we used the the power from the nuclear now it 's not as optimally configured as we could do for example with with a biomass energy, but essentially because of the nature of the two types of energy we need, we just use the conventional that nuclear integration. I will say that I think integrating nuclear with DAC where you use the temperature of the nuclear at 5, 700 degrees C to drive a different kind of DAC cycle, not a low temperature, amine cycle, but some other kind of cycle. I think that's a very interesting idea and something that we, we should look at more. We, we're we not working in that space at the moment, but... Yeah, so low temperature. I mean,
0: my... my, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily call it mid-temperature, from a nuclear reactor point of view, it's pretty high temperature, but you're looking at things like um, uh, salt reactors... Uh, lead fast, sodium fast reactors, they're all capable of getting to the kind of temperatures you need and they have inherent efficiencies when it comes to, I mean, the process you're describing, I think nuclear power stations are from a steam cycle point of view, they're like 25, 30% efficient. And yeah. so they're going to be generating a, quite a lot more electricity than you need for your balanced plant. So if you're using the, the substrate heating as the way of getting rid of your Thermal energy from the power station after it's gone through the steam cycle, where you're going to have an excess of electricity which you'd have to connect the to the grid themselves. On the grid, not normally a disadvantage, electricity is quite available. It's not like heat, it's really hard to use heat. It's very easy to use electricity. So it might work pretty well for you to plug your system in to the existing electricity grid, and then where you've got that imbalance, because you've got parts of your process which need a certain amount of heat and then you generate electricity at the same time. You're generating a bit too much electricity. If you've got a grid connection, you need to sell that service to the grid because someone somewhere is going to want some electricity, right? But you can't yeah. do that as well with heat. So people keep trying to build district heat networks and stuff like that. And so, you know, some countries, they work because they've got a very high degree of central planning. You're building kind of entire suburbs or exurbs all at once. You can build around a district heat network, but certainly in Britain, I don't, we've only got a couple of experimental networks you haven't really got do, is rollout levels. Because electricity is a very transportable commodity, it's not really a disadvantage if you produce a bit too much electricity. Whereas producing a bit too much heat is much more problematic because heat can't read moved around, right?
1: Yes. So I think yes, yeah, so so the integration with nuclear, you know, wouldn't necessarily require all the all the electricity. With the with the biomass System, what we did was is we specifically balanced the steam and power production so that we had the right balance for, for doing direct air capture. The reason being that we were thinking we were building new biomass burning plants, whereas nuclear, we already sort of have the systems all there for the ones that we've already built. And if you built new ones, you know, again, you could, you could tailor them to be in the right ratio of steam and heat for, for DAC.
0: Yeah, you don't have as many nuclear plants as you need, because DAC is energetically quite expensive, but there aren't that many nuclear plants, right?
1: Yeah, so the other thing is, is obviously, again, to think about a dedicated nuclear system, something like a small modular reactor network, where you would position the small modular reactor and DAC together. So that would be a new nuclear infrastructure so to support DAC directly rather than thinking about nuclear as generating baseload power. Now again I think you're right that that probably co-producing negative emissions with DAC and some electricity is the right balance rather than thinking about having a dedicated nuclear plant that is just doing direct air capture. Our main point again of the original paper was In all of these cases, we don't think that the energy piece is going to be the limitation with regards to to direct air capture. We think we've got plenty of, of, of renewable energy in both in all sorts of forms to be able to do DAC. And we have plenty of capacity in geological storage to be able to couple DAC, renewable and geological storage in the same places so that we don't have to you know, move CO2 in pipelines long distances to be able to sequester it.
0: What do you see as a limiting factor?
1: Capital. I see capital as the limiting factor. I see that investing in large scale direct air capture is going to be something that we are going to take a deep breath about before we, we go start to deploy it at the gigaton scale. So I think capital will ultimately be the, the, the limiting factor in this, in this case.
0: So what costs do you envisage per ton for direct air capture and what um, uh, proportion of Capital and OPEX costs. Are you expecting?
1: So I think again, that's going to change with with the design of the system over time as economies of scale come in. I think today, if you look at Climeworks or you look at many of the systems, you're talking you know six seven hundred dollars a ton maybe as a, as a capture cost, and you might be, be thinking that the capital is at least you know two to three hundred dollars a ton of that of that cost. Over time, I think we can reduce those costs substantially. Again. Learning curves are a, a sort of post hoc kind of analysis. So it's not clear that every technology is going to go down the same learning curve. But if DAC went down the same kind of learning curve as other chemical technologies, which is about a 16 to 17 percent learning rate, you would expect to see these costs decline to around $100 a ton by the time you've made about 10 to 100 million ton scale of, uh, of capture. And that that's really so that, getting at. So that learning
0: rate, you're talking about, is that a doubling? So every time you double the scale, you you have that learning rate, 17% yes. reduction rate.
1: Yes, that's correct. 17%. Yes, that's correct.
0: Okay. There was one other thing that you said earlier that I want to return to. You touched on it. It made me think of a question from another podcast. I was told something quite bizarre that really shocked me. And someone said, amount you're getting at. So when you've got one of these client works, DAC fans, so the fans are about um, 1.2 metres diameter, and then they blow, um, air into this packed bed, right? This thing is quite a size of this. The, the packed bed is sort of of the order of 1.5 meters square in section, right? And then it's about twice as long as it is high. So there's quite a lot of it, right? It holds, you know, somewhere around three ton of material, or something like that, right? There's a, a fair bit to it. And I was told what well, we worked out. In fact, during the show, to his credit, one of the our guests was able to the calculations that implied to him that the amount you get out of one of those from a whole cycle would be about 50 grams of co2 which seemed a very small amount i just if you give some context that do you I mean this is it your view that you get about 50 grams of co2 out every time you run a cycle and saturate it and then sweep it or was he that's just the, um, entirely confused retarded. so no, you're, you're literally retarded. getting something like the equivalent of a double shot of whiskey out of this thing, that you've got to leave the air blowing through in for several hours, and then heat it up with steam, and you're getting something equivalent to a double shot of whiskey. And that, that really doesn't seem very much. I mean, if you think about a sponge, like, I could get a sponge that's probably less than a foot long, and then pour a double shot of whiskey into it, and it's gone, right? So, why does it take so much air sponge material to hold
1: the same amount of liquor? So, so, so the answer again here is, is that You're looking at the difference between physical absorption, the whiskey into the sponge, versus a chemical absorption, which is the CO2 reacting with an amine group that is on the material. So how many amine groups do you have per unit mass and how much unit mass do you have per unit volume of the contact? Those are the key metrics that you've got to to look at. I, I don't think that the number that was quoted there is unreasonable with regards to a cycle. Again, I'm not sure about the amount of material, the number of, of amine groups that are in that three tons of material. But our, you know, our calculations are, for our systems are not very different from that. What I will say is, is the, is the speed at which you can cycle the material is absolutely critical, right? So if I'm able to reduce my cycle time to 45 minutes, let's say, rather than, than say four hours, I have obviously a substantial increase in productivity. So I think that's where a lot of people are trying to, to go now is, is to figure out how to make these systems cycle more rapidly, because the amount of CO2 per unit material is something where we, we've sort of not been able to get above a certain level at this point with the types of absorbents that we deal with. So, you know, we got a maximum on a PEI basis, on a polyethylene amine basis of three to four millimoles per gram in a humid system, in a system where there's also water. So, you know, that's kind of the limit. We've not found materials that go much above that to this point. Now, that's not to say, again, some clever materials chemist isn't going to come up with something, but that's where we are today. And so the key is is how do we take that material and cycle it more rapidly? How do we deliver the heat more rapidly? And how do we make sure that we're not mass transfer limited on the air side when we blow or pull the air through the system? So those are the the sort of engineering challenges that we face.
0: I want to draw you on the paper conclusion. I didn't really I only got a hint of that earlier on the show, so what you've actually come up with. But like, What is it learn? we you read your paper.
1: So again, what what you'll learn is is that uh, you know, BDAC or, or bioenergy integrated with DAC has substantially less capacity than obviously solar integrated with DAC simply because we have a lot more land and solar area that we can use compared to suitable forest lands for, for doing this. Not only that, but the BECs, i.e. doing biological carbon capture and sequestration integrated with DAC, the, the efficiency of something like photosynthesis is much lower than the efficiency, say, of capturing heat using some sort of solar thermal device or even doing pv and 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 generating the energy through pv so so photosynthesis is is not a particularly efficient way to capture co2 now what it does do is does also provide at the same time some of the energy for the system because because of burning the biomass but ultimately your capacity is is significantly lower than it is with something like a, a geothermal or a something like a solar thermal or a PV DAC you've just got a lot more capacity with those than you have with with BEX or with BDAC.
0: BEX has got a problematic history of conflict with land rights so it's not an easy solution to integrate when well. the people are often rather selfishly and inconveniently growing their dinner on the land that you are hoping to provide to plant large so of biofuel crops on which is obviously a challenge if you're trying to uh, run BEX at scale because you there's lots of pesky farmers who insist on growing their dinner on this nice agricultural land that we would otherwise like to grow plants onto run our shiny new pet and pecs plants. So that there's a scale limitation there. But if I could draw you on your the conclusions of your paper, so what bearing in mind what was known previously and what we know now as a result of your work, are you is there a, a solution which has become much more prominent now um, as a result of this work or one that's faded into the background? As a result of this work, or is everything just pretty much as people expect it to be
1: I think the answer is is the idea of nuclear integrated with DAC has become a lot more popular, and i don 't know if it 's due to the paper or if it's if it was other things that were that were bubbling around the same time. but if you actually look at uh, a couple of recent grants given by the Department of Energy, they are actually in the area of integrating nuclear power with Direct air capture. So that so so very recently, like in the last couple of months, there have been two projects announced exactly in this space of integrating nuclear with DAC. And I was at a uh, workshop, ARPA-E summit, last the earlier part of this week, and and there again, nuclear integrated with DAC was a topic that was discussed on the stage, I'm thinking very much along the lines that you mentioned of how do we directly integrate nuclear heat. With DAC as opposed to integrating nuclear heat through steam cycles with DAC. So, so literally looking at the problem that you just uh, that you raised during the call.
0: Yeah, the problem with doing steam cycles is that plant capacity and location isn't necessarily where you want it. Whereas if you were doing it with dedicated thermal low-temperature cycles, so you can have a nuclear cycle which is A very low temperature process like uh, a swimming pool reactor right uh where it's 100 percent heat output but you're not you don't have a lot of waste heat because you're running a very low temperature process those swimming pool reactors can work really well for this that's one of the key conclusions of the paper which i wrote some time ago it failed to get published it's one of these long-winded publication journeys that really should have ended a long time ago but hasn't for various reasons And, and that um uh that that much of my mind I know you said that I was saying something different earlier but my view is that these swimming um, uh, pool reactors or uh, the carbon engineering type process the fast reactors are likely to work pretty well and I've never really seen integration with a steam cycle as being the way forward and the reason for that is pretty simple is that I don't really think nuclear power nuclear electricity has got much of a future I think it's a, an expensive form of low carbon electricity that doesn't Really deliver a scale in the way that renewables, batteries, and stuff like that can and could. I'm not saying that it has zero place in the energy mix, but I certainly would imagine that Britain 2050 is going to look like France in uh, 1980, but they had you could walk down the street without falling over a nuclear power station. That doesn't seem very realistic. I think we're going to be wind and solar are going to drive a lot more of the global energy economy than it's nuclear. Now there might be a big breakthrough, small modular reactors or fusion or whatever that would then change the economics again but if we're looking at conventional fission reactions then I would imagine that um, those are not going reg- to regain whatever cost lead they have over renewables in the longer term. That's why I think that the um, the use of nuclear heat for DAC as a direct heat source rather than as a by-product heat source seems to be a reasonably sensible way of going about things. So I'm, I'm interested in this space and I'm glad that you've spoken about it. Uh, is there anything else that you think we haven't covered, I mean, we you covered your team, uh, you've you mentioned your university, you've given us a very comprehensive understanding of the way that fibre spinning can be used to make either isotropic or anisotropic maps. You've given us an insight into how the internal materials, uh, of the contacts can be made and used, including lumen heating which is very interesting. I had no idea that that was even available until you described it. Is there anything that you feel you haven't covered that you'd like to? I mean, this is a longer than usual podcast, but we, I feel I've learned more than usual, quite frankly, and it's a fascinating conversation. I sound a little bit like Melvin Bragg on, um, in our time now, where I'm blown away by all the things that my guests say that in enlightened and fascinate me, but so be it. Is there anything that you want to cover that you haven't covered at the moment or not?
1: No, I think that's, I think covered what I would like to. I mean, it was good that we got into the, to the technology. I would guess the last one point I would like to make is this whole question of, of, you know, dilute concentration CO2 and why it's possible to capture it is really founded on the, the thermodynamics and that the energy input required from a theoretical perspective to do DAC is only about double what it is to do something like a separation from a flue gas, so when the idea that DAC is is going to be energy intense is not really founded on any particular theory. It's founded on a, on an original thought around dilute separations that was put forward by, by Bob Sherwood at MIT in the 1950s that demonstrated a log scaling of cost with, with dilution. But what it didn't, that particular analysis was around was all things where we had to put work into the a feed. And so it was very expensive and very energy intensive. Here, remember the way we're configuring DAC is very little energy on moving the air all the energy on regenerating the material so it looks different from your traditional dilute separation
0: that that dilute separation process is very interesting i think that you're referring to a graph where he looked at separating aspirin from willow bark amongst various right. other things so Talk to me about cause in the thermo- thermodynamic things. have nothing to do with costs, right? I mean, we don't generally drive around in thermodynamically perfect cars or heat our houses with thermodynamically perfect boilers, so they're not terribly important. It's just a limit you, know, you can't cross, right? You might you might want to touch on to, uh, to explain to me why you know, why does that minimum work of separation?
1: So so the logarithmic scaling comes from the the heat of, un- or actually the free energy of unmixing. So if you have two things mixed together and you want to separate them, Paul Dirac, actually a famous physicist, derived the expression that showed what the minimum amount of work was necessary to cause that unmixing. And he showed it was logarithmically related to the concentrations in the feed and the concentrations in the product stream and in the rejection stream. So if you do that... I, caps-
0: I, I understand that that exists, but I can't explain to somebody... Why, why that minimum worker separation exists? What makes it such a fundamental limit?
1: So it's, it's really about the idea that you've got, say, a mixture of, of white and black balls, and you've got that, and somehow you have to be able to pick out the black balls from the white balls. And it turns out that, you know, is changing the entropy of the, of that system, right? Because you're creating two things which in, in themselves now have much less configurations that they can be in relative to the original system where they were mixed together. So it exists essentially because of the number of configurations that the system can occupy in the case where it's mixed and in the case where it's unmixed. So it's an entropy argument, if you like.
0: So basically what you're saying is the the entropy increase that's required to generate the the usable work is can't be Less than the entropy decrease that comes from separation. Otherwise, you have like a chemical engineering perpetual motion machine, right?
1: Correct. Correct. Exactly. That's that's a good way of phrasing it. So that's why it exists. It exists because there has to be a certain amount of of work that you put in to create these two systems that have lower overall entropy compared to the original system. Okay. So that's where that's where it's coming from. So given that, the point being that. If you, if you have that, that analysis, what I just described, applies to a situation where you have to apply work, right? If you have to apply work, you have to do work to make that happen. Now, in the case of an adsorption process, right, the initial step of that process where the, where the CO2 binds to the, to the amine group, that's exothermic. It's spontaneous. So that isn't subject to that particular analysis, right? The overall system is subject to that analysis, but that initial step of the exothermic release of heat spontaneous process is not subject to that restriction. So the key is, is, is once you have established that material with the CO2 on it, now you have to desorb the CO2, and that's where you're putting in most of the work. So If you have a dilute separation process where you can put very little work into the feed, i.e. moving the air, that's great. Now, if you're doing mining, you can't do that. You have to put all the work into digging the ore out of the ground and crushing it up and essentially then exposing it to something that will that will dissolve the mineral you want from the minerals you don't. Right. So you put a lot of work into the into the system at the front end similarly if you're separating something with distillation and you have this mixture you're putting all the work into heating the feed up vaporizing the liquid etc whereas with adsorption you're not doing that you're putting the work into only the piece that you actually end up with at the end which is the amine with the solid with the co2 adsorbed and that looks very similar that configuration looks very similar, whether you started with air or you started with flue gas, because the, the CO2 is on the surface of the material in roughly the same amounts in both cases, because of the nature of the material and the spontaneity of the adsorption. So, the key is don't put much work in on the feed, put all the work in on the on the material, and then try to minimize the amount of work you have to put in on the material by reducing its thermal mass, etc. So, this is why direct air capture can be competitive with other CO2 removal systems because the theoretical work is not that high and you can arrange the system such that you do minimal amounts of work on the moving of the air and maximal amounts of work on recovering the CO2 from the material.
0: Okay, so can you talk to me about the costs associated with this uh, if you just describe briefly that, that paper, I mean, I know you described it very briefly earlier, but I, I was only enough for me to remember which paper you were talking about. So um, it was like not a mathematical proof, but, but creating a, like a distribution for the costs of these separation processes and then showing that they sat they along a line. What is the relationship? and Why do you think that carbon dioxide removal doesn't stick to that relationship?
1: It doesn't stick to that relationship because the processes that Sherwood analyzed were all processes where you had to put all most of the work into the feed and not the into a spontaneous de, or reversing a spontaneous adsorption process. In other words, the separation processes that are on that graph, none of them are adsorption processes. They're all distillation or or other forms of of separation. So they don't necessarily that that cost scaling doesn't necessarily apply to a process which has. Spontaneous adsorption from the feed and putting the work into doing the desorption from the material at the end.
0: So why aren't why didn't he use adsorption processes? Because so those good?
1: weren't those were not really around when he was was creating this system. So he did, as I mentioned, he did this in the 1950s. Adsorption is not a process that we've really used at industrial scale. In that time period, it was mostly distillation, mostly mining sorts of, sorts of separations he was looking at. He wasn't looking at adsorption as a, as a separation technology. And that's, that's one of the keys is, is adsorption is, is, has become more significant as a separation technology in the last 30 to 40 years as compared to the 1950s. Okay.
0: Well, I mean, I, quite blown away by the sheer amount of information you've managed to give me in this podcast. Might chop it up actually and do several podcasts based on this material, depending on how easily that works out or not. And um I think that comes onto the my criticism of your paper is not that it doesn't have enough in you or it's wrong, but it's just got too much. I mean it, it seems like it's like when you go to the chip shop and you want some chips and people running the chip shop seem to have this Philosophical belief that chips are good and therefore more chips are better, and no matter what size of chip portion you ask for you always get what you can possibly eat and I think that the flaw in your paper is that perhaps there's you know several papers in here that all merit publication I, mean, I don't know whether your electro spinning your um solution phase separation spinning was was in the paper there was um, uh, you had that thing about the plant separation distances that could easily have been a separate paper. And then um, you've got the the idea of having a carbon negative and bioenergy process. Again, that could have been a separate paper. Then you've got the the GIS layer, which could have been a separate paper. And then you've got the comparison of all the different low carbon energy sources again that could also have been a separate paper so the only real criticism i've got of your work and of your podcast in fact is that you've just far too much in it it would have been much more manageable and perhaps easier to interface with as a body of work if you just split it up into more papers right i mean do you think that's a fair criticism or not
1: yeah, no, I think that's reasonable. I mean, again, I'm a systems engineer, right? So I tend to be someone who wants to connect things together and finds it difficult to focus on, on just talking about one, one piece of it when really it's, it's the whole thing that needs to be described and, 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 and laid out. So, so I would completely accept that criticism as as a valid one i just but unfortunately that's my sort of my mental cast is is to is to try to put things together rather than factor things out because i see them as being you know intimately connected and very important that people see those connections
0: yeah there are synergies between those things you're quite right to point them out but the challenge i think in this body of work is you've created you know there are nuggets in there like for example the separation of of plants which you didn't even make it into your main paper you just left it in the supplementary materials and you know that's a that's a key problem that people have worked on and and you've not even thought to elevate it to the main body text of your paper so uh, you've done the reversal of salami slicing you've you've got a bundle of salami not unlike your bundle of spaghetti and and, and published them all together as a single um, Uh, body of work a single paper rather than creating a body of work which is each separate strand so that's really my only criticism it's just the indigestibility of this enormous bundle of salami that you presented me with I feel like if I talked to you for another two hours I'd probably get another two hours worth of content out rather than just running out of material which is rarely happens to be quite (laughs) frank so yeah I think you should uh, give yourself a good hard slap and discipline yourself to publish more papers that have less in them quite frankly otherwise your work is going to get lost in your own appendices, which is not normally the state of play for most academics, who, who publish half a thought rather than publishing a single thought, which is, again, not not a very good way of publishing, because you end up with a, a disparate muddle that no one can make any sense of. But here you've got a bunch of coherent and well-argued uh, scientific points and engineering points that uh, have been jumbled up to the point that, they become almost impenetrable. So uh, yes, a brilliance and also somewhat of an administrative and learning nightmare. So uh, thanks very much for that coming on. I just want one final question I have for you. You said you're a systems engineer. You sound like you talk like a combination of manufacturing engineer and a chemical engineer. So what, is, what was your heritage? How did you come into this? What was your kind of qualification, route?
1: So yeah, so I'm a chemical engineering undergrad from Imperial College in London. And then I came out here and did a PhD, and the sort of subject area that, that I study is process systems engineering, which interestingly enough is that combination of looking at processes and also thinking about manufacturing and manufacturing scale at the same time. So, so, so your analysis is quite is quite correct in terms of my intellectual um, sort of history, if you like. I uh, I do study processes and I do think about scale up of processes as part of doing process systems engineering. So yeah, optimization, design, scheduling, those are the kinds of areas in which I've worked. And I got into direct air capture essentially through conversations with the founder of Global Thermostat, Peter Eisenberger, and I had conversations back in 2012 where we laid out and actually wrote a, an article, a short letter for Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, on this question of the thermodynamic efficiency and specifically why Sherwood's analysis should not be used to analyze direct air capture systems. And so that's kind of the motivation for where I've come from in terms of the uh, the analysis of this. And then we have had several grants over the past decade to look at direct air capture including using the fiber systems that i've described extensively in this podcast and other types of types of materials for for doing air, direct air capture
0: so i'm interested to understand the techniques tools that you your been using. so this touches on to some extent some of raymond tan's work about you know he does like fuzzy network optimization and burrito front efficiency stuff there's a lot of things that touches on elements of operations research it sounds like what you're, you're you're doing is a kind of like you're a chemical engineer's big brother basically you're doing a lot of higher scale processes and higher scale optimization than a chemical engineer would normally handle is that right
1: yeah and, and the process systems engineering field is very much focused on that so we do a lot of work in supply chain design do a lot of work in process control process design as well and then integrating those together into sort of more high-level m- macro scale analysis so there's folks who do analysis of entire chemical Manufacturing infrastructure. So if we wanted to decarbonize the chemical industry by 2050, how might we go about that in terms of the feedstocks and the energy sources that we would need? So you've got people doing, doing that kind of macro scale analysis. You've got people doing, uh, building models, simulations, and then doing optimization of individual process units. So, so we really span the, uh, the, that, that level of, of analysis across from very fundamental integration with materials design all the way up to thinking about networks of chemical processes themselves.
0: I find that fascinating in, in as much as, I would I find myself as the world's best engineer by any, anyway, um, but I don't know nothing about engineering because I did a degree in it. Uh, you know, I didn't do very well in it, so it wasn't very, very hard, but I'm surprised that you're announcing to me now that there's a whole discipline of engineering. I've never heard of it. it rather makes me curious as to what other disciplines of engineering exist. Despite going through an entire grip, it seems that like I'm entirely ignorant of myself. I don't actually know much of it exists, which is just terrifying, really. But that was very fascinating, very deep. There was an awful lot of material in that. God only knows how I'm going to edit that into one podcast. It'll probably end up as about two or three or four or five or something like that. But Nevertheless, thanks for coming on and enlightening us. And I do wish that you'd unbundle some of your genius because I think that much of your value has been lost somewhere in an appendix in the locked filing cabinet in the, um, on a moon of Alpha Centauri or wherever it was that the plans of the Hitchhiker's Guide were published. So hopefully you'll, you'll publish a bit more and then come back and talk to us about individual papers. And then we'll have manageable sized podcasts rather than enormous unlistenable giant podcasts that come on for two hours. But thanks for coming on, nevertheless, and uh, I hope we'll speak to you again in due course. Thanks very much.
1: Thank you very much, too. Bye-bye.
0: Bye.